On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the latest news, review some financial benchmarks, discuss the three different types of consents used in an ASC, and in our focus segment, we review the requirements for managing recalls, including an interview with Tracy Chadwell, the Clinical Recall Communications Advisor for Notosphere. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. We would like to thank our sponsors, Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers, Trivalence. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable data insights, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, please visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. Welcome to episode 177 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for December 5th, 2022, recording from Spencerport, New York. This is Sue Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and a Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. The ASC regulatory environment is extremely dynamic and the material provided in this episode is based on information available as of the date of the recording. Joining me is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, and recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. Mr. Gailey is the author of over 10 books on the ASC industry and a frequent industry speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. So we are back in Rochester. I can't remember when the last time we did an episode, but I'm pretty sure we were still down in Hilton Head when we we did that. It was a bit Uh, warmer there. We might have complained (laughs) about it not being real warm, but boy, compared... Definitely kind of cold up here in Spencerport, New York, and uh, I, we hope all of you are uh, had a great Thanksgiving holiday, mm-hmm. and I hope that you're uh, enjoying the preparations for Christmas or uh, whatever holiday you celebrate this time of year. So, Sue, I've been off the road so long that uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I go back on the road tomorrow, but I've been off <laughs> yeah. the road so long, I, I'm not even sure where the car is parked right now. Uh, we've had uh, we've had a, a, a mm-hmm. little bit of a a break from uh, the travel, but I will mm-hmm. be uh, traveling again soon. We've had an awful lot of activity also with our patron program yes, uh, because we have our new website up and running. So uh, if you are interested in becoming a patron and and certainly joining in all the fun on Saturday mornings and when we uh, do a drop-in session with all of our patron members, mm-hmm. or if you want access to all those wonderful resources that come with the patron program, make sure you, you visit our uh, website at ASCPodcast.com and follow the links for the patron program. So, Sue, why don't you update us on some of the most recent news? Okay. So, because I don't think we can go an entire episode without mentioning either COVID or monkeypox. <laughs> right. There's just a, something that I noticed. The World Health Organization is phasing out the name monkeypox in favor of mpox, which to me is harder. It, it doesn't harder, roll off yeah. the tongue even as well as monkeypox, but probably because it really, you know, monkeypox isn't really an appropriate name. But they're phasing that out over the next few months and... You know, within a year, they're not going to call it monkeypox anymore. So get used to saying mpox. And Kaiser Health News reported a patient was filing a complaint with the state medical board against the physicians at the surgery center where he'd had cataract surgery. The surgery was successful, but when he woke up, he had just a small gash on his forehead. And it wasn't mentioned by the clinical team. It wasn't in the medical record. And during his follow-up appointment, he, he asked the surgeon about what had happened Um And that he mentioned, I guess the patient had sort of a vague memory of some commotion happening during the surgery. And the surgeon then admitted that there was a reaction to the anesthesia. Now, we don't know what the resolution to this will be or or what will happen with the the, um, suit that he's filing. And there really was no serious injury, so it's unlikely that he's really going to be able to get far with it. But, you know, just having that issue out there and the bad publicity that happened from that, it just could have been avoided by documenting better and communicating with the patient. I just think that's important, an important note to remember, you know, 
you just don't ever try to hide something or cover up. It wasn't a bad injury. But what upset him is that there was nothing in the medical record. And if he did have a reaction to the anesthesia, that's important for him to know moving forward. But there's also so many failures in this, like mm-hmm. a nurse uh, who was involved in uh, the, the circulating nurse, the tech, uh, the anesthesiologist, the surgeon, obviously. Um, see, it gets down to one of those things that we, we talk about quite a bit is that mm-hmm. this is an incident report, albeit, you know, hopefully it wasn't a very major one, but mm-hmm. certainly the medical records should have had some notification as to mm-hmm. what had occurred because that's going to protect you in the event of a lawsuit so that you have it fully documented. Yeah, and letting um, the patient know, you know, maybe right. it isn't anything serious, but hey, this this thing happened and, Yeah, you this know, probably wouldn't even turn into deal. a lawsuit if it nope. weren't for the fact that uh, they, they didn't admit to it up front. So. Mm-hmm. Yet another good example of how important it is to have proper communication and good documentation. Mm -hmm. And as we're heading into the new year soon, I wanted to share some articles on the future of ambulatory surgery. According to Global Market Insights, the ASC's market value is estimated to exceed $144.5 billion by 2032. And some of the reasons they mentioned were um, the increasing cost in hospitals, of course, the aging population, um, increase in chronic diseases, and the increasingly favorable reimbursement plans um, related to ASCs. So not only are there more patients out there, but, you know, hopefully a lot more of them are coming to the ASCs as opposed to the hospital. Right. We're getting the word out there. And that's certainly something mm-hmm. that uh, I haven't been in the industry for 32 years now. It's great to see um, that we are hitting a stride. And I think a lot of it, as we've talked about, um, you know, on the podcast and I've talked about in some of my speeches lately, really uh, is one of the... Um, Hopefully the or probably the only positive thing that came out of mm-hmm. the pandemic there um, for the industry is the fact that we have become a lot more known and that we certainly pr- uh, provide a safer alternative to hospitals. Again, nothing against hospitals. It's just that hospitals are there for a very different reason. And if we can move uh, these types of cases, you know, like uh, the the more elective cases into the surgery mm-hmm. center setting and and relieve the hospitals of of those cases so they can focus on more uh, more difficult uh, mm-hmm. situations and of course have the capacity to be able to handle emergencies or you know illnesses or pandemics mm-hmm. and you know so much the better yeah. and and of course who wants to go to a hospital mm-hmm. if, if they don't, they have, don't to. have to I think that's an important element yeah. here and it'll so. go a long way to just saving all the healthcare dollars not that's just right. for the individual but just, you know, for the country. This is funny. Uh, the accountant is, once you mentioned the other thing, and the and the nurse mentioned yes, the, uh, the cost. The so. finance. <laughs> and along that same line, there's an article by Susan Morse, the executive editor of Healthcare Finance. Um, surgeries at ambulatory surgery centers are predicted to grow by about 25% in the next 10 years, mostly driven by cost savings. As an example, an average gallbladder surgery can cost $12,000 in a hospital compared to $2,200 at a surgery center. That's just incredible. And analysis by United Health Group estimated that surgical costs could be reduced by at least 59% by encouraging their members to obtain care at an ASC. So... Hopefully, where everybody's heading in the right direction, and we can kind of turn things around. But yeah, you and I both uh, updated our uh, healthcare insurance uh, choices for next year, and I think all of us now are kind of uh, heading into the direction. You know, we we for so long, Sue, have not had high deductible plans in our mm-hmm. our insurance, and yet that's that is becoming the norm, which means which puts a lot more pressure on the consumer to try to find the best price option mm-hmm. out there, and yeah. I think that that's a Definitely a very positive thing that's coming out and definitely a benefit to surgery centers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're going to include uh, uh, links to all of these uh, these news articles we're talking about. But there was a great benchmark study that was done by Avanza. And we've talked about Avanza a couple times. But their 2022 benchmark report included some uh, benchmarks uh, figures that I just wanted to go through. We talk about these a lot uh, among mm-hmm. our clients. And we certainly have referred to them uh, in the podcast over time. And I, I refer to these types of statistics all the time in uh, my speeches. But so let's just go through some of the more common uh, benchmarks uh, as reported by Avanza here. And and again, hopefully all of you can use these to compare to your own statistics and see where you stand. In reviewing the uh, 2022 key ASC benchmarks and industry figures from Avanza, and we'll provide a link to it, uh, there was uh, quite a number of interesting uh, line items. Unfortunately, one of them is a little bit confusing because the numbers don't seem consistent. 
so the salaries, wages, and benefits as a percentage of net revenue and the salaries and wages as a percentage of net revenue, there seems to be a typo there. So I'm not going to refer to that, uh, that statistic since I'm not quite sure which one is correct. But we'll talk about the other ones that were kind of interesting. So the benefit cost as a percentage of total compensation was 15% which means that if you take the benefits costs, the total cost of like uh, uh, health insurance or uh, mm -hmm. any other benefits that you offer to your employees and divide it by the compensation for those employees, it came up to 15%. Now, Sue, that seems kind of low. Mm -hmm. And I suspect it's low because uh, perhaps the sample included a lot of, uh, of surgery centers that might have a high uh, number of per diems mm -hmm. or part-time employees that might not get benefits. Uh, we generally see within our company, among our clients, somewhere between 17 and 25% mm -hmm. as that benefits cost. Next line item, which was a surprise because it seems to be ratcheting up, and that is supply costs as a percentage of net revenue. Mm -hmm. The historic number that we've always heard is about 25%, but this uh, benchmark was 27.8%. Mm -hmm. So kind of an indication that supplies cost is going up. Could mm -hmm. be partly the supply chain impact in 2022. Um, you know, with st relatively stagnant uh, reimbursement rates, uh, okay. which hopefully will, you know, start going up this year. The number of days cash on hand was 56, a real surprise to me. But I think it's indicative of what's going on in the industry right now that we know that we want to maintain higher cash balances uh, because of what happened with the pandemic. It used to be find those numbers closer to 30 or 35. The days in AR, they gave a range of between 35 and 45 days, and that seems to be a relatively consistent number that we've seen in the past. The uh, accounts receivable over 90 days, in other words, accounts receivable that uh, is, more than, uh, uh, is more than 90 days past the date of surgery, was less than 15%. Uh, clean claims uh, went going out were 98%, and the denial rate was less than 5%. So I, I thought those numbers were very interesting. We'll provide a link to them. There's a lot more information included in the benchmark here that's uh, pretty useful. So one thing that I'd really like to encourage centers to do is to include these types of benchmarks in both their quality improvement minutes because we are mm -hmm. required to do benchmarking. And, and frankly, often we only include clinical data there. But to include this in your benchmark data for uh, your quality improvement is a, is a great opportunity. Again, don't forget to include your business office people in your quality improvement meetings. Mm -hmm. uh, and then certainly report this to the governing body so that they can see how they compare, how your organization compares to the national statistics. And now we wanted to talk about some recent experiences. I believe this, again, came from our Saturday session. We always have a lot of good subjects come up there. Um, we were talking a lot about consents and signing them at the right time and, and all of that. Yeah, and, and this has been coming up during surveys recently, too. So, so let's start the conversation by talking about the three different types of consents. The first one is the consent to treatment, which, frankly, of the three consents that you will most likely have in a surgery center, the consent to treatment is one that can be signed in the presence of the receptionist up front. Uh, and the consent to treatment is a small document, usually included with uh, financial disclosures, uh, mm -hmm. that gives permission for the the, uh, the nursing staff to provide care to the patient. The second type is the procedure or surgical consent, depending upon whether, you know, what type of procedure, whether it's a surgery or a procedure. And that is the consent that's signed by the doctor. And it's actually better known as the informed consent for the procedure that's being performed. And I think we all know what those are. Signed by the doctor and the patient. And the patient, correct. And that indicates that the patient has had a conversation with the doctor mm -hmm. regarding the the, uh, the the risks and rewards uh, and possible um um, uh, alternatives to the surgery. Mm -hmm. And the last one, of course, is the anesthesia consent. Now, the anesthesia consent could be included in the procedural surgical consent. That is acceptable. But it is important to remember that uh, you need to have an anesthesia consent anytime anesthesia is given. So as I mentioned, only the consent to treatment is acceptable to be signed up front. We have seen um, in, in my time as a surveyor situations in which the receptionist actually has the patient sign all three of these consents up front before mm -hmm. the conversation even occurred. Uh, and that's just not acceptable at all, especially the anesthesia consent. This I've seen a number of times where the anesthesia consent that the patient was asked to sign that anesthesia consent before the anesthesiologist actually had an opportunity to talk to the patient. So the procedural consent is best signed in the office uh, when that patient is having a conversation with 
uh, the doctor about, you know, ab- about the procedure that's about to be performed. Um, and then that consent, once it's signed in the office, would be sent to the center. If it's not possible to get the procedural consent signed in the office and sent to the surgery center, the next best situation is for the doctor to have a conversation and go over the consent form while the patient is in the pre-op area. You don't want to have this in the operating room. It's got to be in the pre-op area prior to the procedure and then gets the signature from the patient directly. When all else fails, the nurse can get the consent, but the nurse needs to make sure that it is clear that she is not providing the informed consent. She is merely getting the signature and that if the patient has any questions or doesn't remember the informed consent conversation with the, uh, the patient, between the patient and the doctor, that uh, they, will, uh, they will wait for the doctor to come in and have that conversation. Again, it's very important that that nurse have that conversation with the patient uh, uh, referring back to the conversation that the mm-hmm. doctor had. Uh, this could be a severe, as you, as a nurse knows, Sue, um, you, you don't want to take any responsibility for that informed consent. Mm-hmm. You can't even read the form to the patient, really. Uh, it's just not appropriate. And we've even seen situations where a tech has gotten the consent mm-hmm. signed, and that's not appropriate. Yeah. It is, uh, of course, never acceptable to have the consent signed in the operating room or the procedure room. And the anesthesia consent needs to be signed after the anesthesiologist has spoken to the patient. Mm-hmm. And the anesthesia consent has to indicate the level of anesthesia that has been determined appropriate for that patient. Mm-hmm. So, again, hopefully this has given you uh, some good uh, guidance on, on the different types of consents. So I knew that, uh, that you've studied issues, legal issues, with regard to the medical record, and this is somewhat one of those mm-hmm. areas that you run into periodically in mm-hmm. your research. And I certainly have found it in uh, the uh, as an expert witness during litigation mm-hmm. that it, the consent is something that's always uh, an issue. And no matter what the litigation is, uh, they're always going to go back to that document. So it's extremely important that uh, you you go through that process yeah. appropriately. It's very clear and specific. Sometimes things are pre-populated or they have to have a check mark in the specific area and people don't do that or they just put a line down or, or something like that. You've got to make sure you've been very clear with what the patient is consenting too. And that does bring up another point, too. Uh, remember that it's got to be in language that the patient understands. There shouldn't mm-hmm. be any, you know, uh, abbreviations that would not be very clear to the mm-hmm. patient. So let's take a break, and then we're going to come back. We're going to talk about recalls. Uh, this is a topic we've never discussed before, uh, and I think you'll find it kind of interesting uh, about all the steps you have to go through. So uh, let's take a short break, and we'll be right back. It's been a long day, and the surveyor has just left, and you are exhausted and looking at the list of items that you have to address. You wonder, how can I deal with this and still take care of my patients? More importantly, you wonder, how can I ever keep up with all the regulations, standards, and accreditation requirements? How can I always be prepared for a survey and reduce my stress levels? Well, that's what Ambitory Healthcare Strategies does, day in, day out. We become your outsourced regulatory and accreditation resource. We can maintain your policy manual, develop your education programs, help out with fire and disaster drills, do your risk assessments, oversee your quality improvement activities, help run your quality improvement meetings and governing body meetings, and we can even prepare your monthly or quarterly financial statements and help you figure out where you are financially. We are a retainer-based service. We don't take ownership. We don't charge based on your revenue. We have one fixed monthly fee, and we can tailor your services to your exact needs. So whether you're looking for help getting over a survey, preparing for a survey, or looking for a long-term relationship to assist you with your ongoing regulatory and or financial needs, please give us a call at 585-594-1167 or email us at info at ahstrategies.com. That is info at ah-strategies.com or visit our website at ah-strategies.com. During our focus segments, we always like to go back and refer to the Medicare conditions for coverage of the Medicare regulations and the interpretive guidelines. So 
When we're talking about recalls, the condition for coverage that is the most uh, applicable section is 416.48, the condition for coverage for pharmaceutical services. And it says the ASC must provide drugs and biologicals in a safe and effective manner in accordance with accepted professional practice and under the direction of an individual designated responsible for pharmaceutical services. Now, you'll note that there is no actual reference to recalls here. Uh, So you have to infer from this. And when we went into the interpretive guidelines, there really uh, was no uh, guidance in that area also. So uh, that's probably one of the reasons why we haven't talked about it before because interpretive guidelines tend to be our Bible. However, the accreditation organizations do refer to it. I'm going to go through three of the accreditation organizations here that have very specific references to it. So we'll start with AAAC. And the AAAC accreditation standards include the following. A written policy and process addresses the recall of items including drugs and vaccines, blood and blood products, medical devices, equipment and supplies, and food products. The policy addresses sources of recall information such as the FDA, CDC, manufacturers, and other state, local, or federal sources. So it's important that you're keeping up on, you're getting notifications or checking those websites. Um, the policy addresses how applicable staff members are notified. It addresses how the organization determines if a recalled product is present or has been given or administered to patients. The policy addresses the response to recalled products and the disposition or return of recalled items and patient notification as appropriate. So again, those are the that's right from the accreditation manual for AAAC. And the Joint Commission uh, includes recalls, a discussion of recalls under their chapter on environment of care, which is EC02.01.01, which states that the organization manages safety and security risks. And specifically, line 11 says the organization responds to product notices and recalls. Without getting into too much detail, this also falls under MM05.01.17, which states that the organization follows a process to re- retrieve, recalled, or discontinued medications. And it is noted that the standard is applicable to all organizations that dispense medications, including sample medications. It goes on to state that the organization follows a written policy describing how it will retrieve and handle medications within the organization that are recalled or discontinued for safety reasons by the manufacturer or the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. And this element of performance is also applicable to sample medications, which hopefully most surgery centers don't deal with. Mm -hmm. When a medication is recalled or discontinued for safety reasons by the manufacturer or the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the organization notifies the prescribers and those who dispense or administer the medication. So, so what's interesting here between AAAC and Joint Commission is AAAC is very specific about including uh, things other than drugs, uh, like vaccine. Well, vaccines being somewhat of a drug, uh, blood and blood products, medical devices, equipment and supplies, and food products. Joint Commission doesn't go into that level of detail, but mm-hmm. of course, you should be following that anyway. Yeah. And lastly, HFAP, or under their new name, ACHC includes under 12.01.08 a process for monitoring supplies, and it states right in there, monitoring of product recalls and removal of relevant products. The organization is in compliance with its policies. So interestingly, it's very uh, minor reference there yeah, in HFAP. So, mm-hmm. so I, I always find it interesting how the different accreditation organizations handle this. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about what your policy should address under pro- product recalls. You need to establish policies and procedures which are uh, to be implemented immediately upon receipt of a medical device, device alert or na- uh, notification from a manufacturer issuing a caution or recall of a product, including but not limited to food, nourishment, medications, implants, products, and equipment. And your policy should address products affected by a manufacturer's recall should not be used for patients and should be discarded or sent back to the company upon request. All recalled products should be collected immediately, separated from circulation, labeled and secured. Defective products used for patients prior to recall notification must be tracked and findings documented. Manufacturers are responsible for products affected by a recall. And your procedure should include a method for identifying recalls and upon receipt of the recall or alert notification from the FDC, CDC, or the manufacturer, the organization shall inspect their respective storage locations for the recalled items. 
Uh, and you should also, in, in your policy, indicate exactly who is going to be doing that. What role? Not the or, or, I'm sorry, <laughs> not the individual, but the yes. role of the person that's doing it, correct. Uh, and if you do find the product, the procedure should also include uh, how you will alert all the personnel verbally and via written notice, how you're going to issue instructions to collect all of the recalled products. Uh, you're going to assist with the collection and replace with new stock if available. You're going to list all recalled products collected, including numbers of each, and notify the manufacturer and arrange for pickup or whatever other instructions that are provided by the manufacturer. You want to document Document all communication with the manufacturer and investigate situations where the product has been utilized by patients prior to the recall. You certainly want to inform physicians that they may have util- that they may have utilized the recalled products, and as appropriate, notification of the patients uh, will be the responsibility of the physician and the ASC. If the product is not stocked, you need to document on the notification sheet from the manufacturer that no products were found in the center. And whoever search should sign and date the notification form, maintain a copy of the form, and refer it, return it to the manufacturer as soon as possible. If the medication to be returned is a controlled substance, two nurses must package and seal the, the product. Uh, and this will be recorded on the narcotic count sheet as returned for product recall. All product return forms that include medications must be signed by the medical director. All product recalls shall be documented and reported at the next QAPI uh, committee meeting. There are three classifications of food and drug administration recalls, and they indicate the relative degree of health hazard presented by the product being recalled. So class one is for dangerous or defective products that could predictably cause serious health problems or death. Examples may include food found to contain botulinum toxin, food with undeclared allergens, a label mix-up on a life-saving drug, or a defective artificial heart valve. In class two are products that might cause a temporary health problem or products that pose only a slight uh, threat of a serious nature. For example, a drug that is under strength uh, but that is not used to treat life-threatening situations. And class three, products that are unlikely to cause any adverse health reaction but that violate FDA labeling or manufacturing laws. Examples include a minor container defect or lack of English labeling in a retail food. So hopefully this gives some guidance as to how to track this information. It's very important that that as a surveyor, when we come in, we can see a binder that includes all the recalls that have occurred in the past three years. And certainly you should be working with a uh, pharmacy consultant when it comes to drug recalls if you have a pharmacy consultant. Yet another reason why you should probably have a pharmacy consultant, Mm -hmm. as we've talked about quite a bit over the years. So this is a very complex process. And my friend Tracy uh, Chadwell, who we've worked with over the years and uh, worked with quite a bit during the pandemic, actually, when she was uh, with Intelair, she now is uh, the clinical recall communications advisor for Notosphere. And Notosphere has an interesting product. By the way, it's free, which is why we're talking about it here. But it basically provides kind of a mechanized or uh, a computer uh, solution to this. And uh, during the interview, uh, this was a wide-ranging interview with uh, Tracy about the recall process and some of the, the hang-ups that you can run into, as well as uh, an opportunity or an offer for, offer for you to uh, uh, sign up for a free service to be able to track this type of information online, which would greatly decrease the amount of paperwork that you're tracking. So let's uh, listen to this interview with Tracy Chadwell, uh, Clinical Recall Communications Advisor for Notosphere. So I'm here with my dear friend, Tracy Chadwell. Tracy and I go back. Um, during the pandemic, we met, and uh, she was on a, a number of our conferences uh, during the pandemic, and, and as well as some of the podcasts, I remember. Very helpful in her former uh, employment. She uh, played a major role in uh, on the nursing side and supply procurement. So that's really what her expertise was. Today, we're going to talk about recalls, which is a topic I don't think we've actually talked about here Tracy, and of course, one of the reasons I have you here, because it's not one of those areas that I know too much beyond, you know, what I require when I'm doing a survey. So first of all, why don't you introduce yourself? Well, I'm Tracy Chadwell, and I'm working right now um, with a company called Notosphere that manages and and helps facilities manage their recall process. And um, I've been a nurse for over 30 years, don't even want to think about that, Um, (laughs) but have really combined my expertise in the nursing area with my supply chain experiences and GPO world um, to 
help consult with people and to make it more manageable when they're looking at whether they're supply services and in this case also recall management. Absolutely. And thank you so much. As I said, you've always been a great resource to us. So let's talk about this uh, this important topic. Of course, as a survey, I'll, I'll tell you, where, I'll just start from a surveyor standpoint. As a surveyor, we, um, uh, for accreditation and for certification purposes, as well as I'm sure, uh, you know, the, the state, li- state licensure requirements, it requires you to have a recall policy. And that policy has to address all of the supplies that you might have, no matter what type. Uh, and to it, basically what we want to do is assure that the patients are not uh, given products that have been recalled or are, no, are not suitable for use. So why don't we just start with uh, just that background discussion on why do we need a recall policy? Absolutely. Well, it's very important because when you think about it, the longer you have a recall product in your um, facility, the more apt you are to have a patient exposed to that product, which could then potentially cause some patient harm. And so it's very important that you address it quickly. Um, It is part of the regulations. And as we know, FDA um, is involved in this very heavily as Mm -hmm. well. And so it's incredibly important from a patient safety perspective to um, address these and get that there. And it's not just recalls of products, it's also any kind of safety alerts and updates. Um, and we're seeing it in more and more categories now, such as the software, which we really never thought about that before. But so there, there's many different areas that can affect patient care and put patients at potential risk for harm and even sometimes employees. So it's very important to be able to address recalls. Well, and to your point, uh, recently there was a, a notification from uh, the FDA about a uh, a flexible endoscope that no longer could be processed using high-level disinfectant. It had to be sterilized. And that wasn't a recall. The product was all right. It just couldn't be how do you say, made ready to take care of a patient without going through a full sterilization, whereas the high-level disinfecting was the, the prior process. So you're right. It doesn't, recall might not be the total, the, the correct terminology here, but I, I agree with you. Right. There's safety notices a lot of times or field alerts, depending yeah. on, you know, where, what country you're in, because the Europeans call them field alerts, you know, and so that there, but there may be safety notices, changes in the IFUs, anything yeah. that really is going to address how you're using a product. Um, and if it changes or again, like I said, one of the things that we're saying is application, um, as you were mentioning, way to clean it, store it, anything like that, that could have a potential impact on how that's being used in the organization. Yeah, actually, as I'm talking to you, I'm thinking that all of our policies, I'm sure, refer to recalls. We probably should change the name of that to uh, to be more encompassing, uh, like safety alerts, et cetera. That's a great idea, and, and we'll we'll start working on that ourselves. So, uh, I, it's every once in a while, uh, actually, I learn something new, Tracy, or, or at least <laughs> I think about something new. Thank you. So what? Let's so let's talk about the traditional way that people do this. Well, it's interesting. You know, you think about today, our lives are so tuned to electronics, as we were talking about earlier, um, whether it be email, text messaging, that type of thing. And so there's all these automated ways we communicate. And yet with recalls, one of the most important communications that we may have or safety notices, we're still using paper. And so there's delays in that, as we know that there is obviously when it's coming through snail mail, as we always call it, right? Um, that there's going to be a delay in getting it. But also when we've had people working remotely or when we were closed down, it took days to get those recall alerts and notifications from the supplier to the providers. And that continues to be the case when you're dealing with paper recalls. It may go to the wrong place and take a while to get to it. The other thing is that the FDA requires that the provider suppliers have received so many notifications back that they've received it. And that, again, is going by paper. And if they don't get it, they send another recall notice. So you have this constant going back and forth of paper, and you're having to deal with it as well, not only suppliers. And that gets expensive if you think about it. It's registered mail or it's FedEx. So you can imagine how much with the rising costs in in, uh, mail services, how that can impact both the provider and the supplier. Yeah, and a point that I I would make is that it is not infrequent when I'm on a survey that I cite uh, centers for this issue because there's no documentation of how they did it. So why don't you walk through, once you receive a recall notice, what the expectation is from the FDA as well as the CMS uh, as to how you would handle a recall? Once the paper um, notification is received, then the expectation is that the provider reply back and at least say, yes, I have it. And 
That's going to stop the repeated notices if they do that. Um, then they need to address it. Did we buy it? Um, and where was it? Is it still in stock? Where, you know, where did we put it? Where did we use it? So they need to identify it. And many times because there's just this massive alert sent out, or if some of the facilities are using what we call a broadcaster, um, which basically just lists all the different recalls, you don't even know if it applies to you. So you've got to figure out, okay, really, does this, did we buy this? Do we, does this make sense? Is this something that applies to our organization? And then figure out where it is. And then you take the actions that are listed in the letter or the notification that you get from the supplier um, to take action, whether it be a removal or, as we said, a safety update. Maybe it's a it's a download of software update or a change in how you're using it. Um, all of that information would be in the notification. And then your response would be in there, whether you destroy it, whether you send product back. Whatever you have to do, that information will be in the recall notification, and you're expected to respond to that as well. So there's two responses that are required back from the provider, and that information all needs to be kept by the supplier so they can then show the FDA that they have responded appropriately and got a certain percentage of responses back. And so, like I said, you can see we're in that process. There's all kinds of opportunities for delays and misdirection of the information, which then again creates increased patient risk of being exposed to those products if we're not addressing these correctly and in a good time frame. So um, there's been many recommendations that the FDA has put out several times. They've not mandated it yet, but they talk about bringing in some form of electronic communication um, and again, like I said, it makes sense. We're doing it in every other part of our life. Why wouldn't we be doing it in something as essential and crucial as this to be able to have a quick way to respond back um, directly to the supplier? And if once that connection is made, they also then would be able to communicate directly to them specifically to what products they purchased. And so that's another added benefit because then you don't have people chasing their tails trying to figure out, do we ever buy this? You know, is this something that applies to us? Do we have to do this? Because a lot of time is spent, especially in larger centers, um, trying to figure out, did it even apply to us? Right. And, you know, only to find out, no, we didn't. So, again, that was kind of a waste of time. And we all know that staffing today is not optimal. And so being able to reduce that workload is very important as well. What would you foresee or what do you think would be the best uh, paper trail for this? How, again, talking shall we say it, the old way, uh, mm -hmm. the way that most people are doing it now. And then, then we'll, of course, get into the exciting new opportunities out there and how we how we can use, as you said, the new technology to drive it. So for the average surgery center that's listening to the podcast right now that doesn't have these extensive fancy systems or even moderately fancy systems uh, for dealing with recalls, just walk through what the average um, uh, person and, and who in the organization would most likely be expected to do this also. Well, again, and that's going to probably vary, but because we all serve so many hats when we're yeah. working in clinical area. Um, but usually there's going to be somebody designated, whether it be risk management or, you know, whoever's managing the office kind of thing, who's going to get that notification. It, it, it is really going to vary depending on the organization, but um, supply, supply chain. But again, a lot of times that's the nurses, right? They're, yeah. they're having to do that spot. So, so the notification. It's mostly going to be the people that are listening to this podcast. Correct. Correct. <laughs> And, and so what, what I've seen in the past is either there's really no process, it's hit and miss, or it's Excel spreadsheets or emails. And so if you were asked, and as you know, John, when you're doing um, an accreditation survey, they are going to try and struggle to find it. it they yeah. may actually have hard copies too in a notebook. Some of them have gone to that point. But there's really not a good central repository that can just be pulled up automatically to show the status and what actions were taken. It's all going to be something that's done very manually. Mm -hmm. And again, even if you, if you can even find it. Um, so it, that leaves them wide open, as you have already stated, that that's something that's not going to be addressed or not going to be shown that they've done taken proper action to ensure that the recall or the safety notice was um, actually addressed and any kind of changes made that are required. Yeah, and my expectation is uh, if you have a manual process for this, I would expect to see a recall binder. You could have separate recall binders, maybe for drugs, food, supplies, equipment. You know, you might even have separate one for uh, safety notices. But I, I, I kind of like having everything, you know, all together. That way you you don't have to think about what type it is. So I'd, I would expect as a surveyor to be able to see a binder that I open up. I, I'm making hang signals, and, of course, this is a verbal uh, 
<laughs> podcast, but oh well. Uh, you would open up the binder. The survey would be able to open it up, see the most recent recall at the top. It would have a copy of the recall. A copy attached to it would be uh, like an email or a letter that was sent back or the response, uh, if it's paper, you know, if there's a form that they had to fill out uh, as how they responded to it. And then some narrative type discussion if, if the you know, often what we find is the recall notice comes back and there's just a note at the bottom that says we have none of this product. I'd say more than half the time, that's really what you have, uh, if not more. But if there is product, then you have to go through how what you did in order to get rid of it. And to your point earlier, if any patients have been affected by this, how you followed up with those patients. And that's really one of the more critical things. And that's that's where you could really get into condition level citations as well as immediate jeopardy. Um, if they find out that you have ignored a recall that came in for a product that, you know, that was found to be dangerous or that should not have been implanted uh, or used on a patient. Absolutely. I mean, it is a crucial when you, when you think about it in those terms. Um, because, again, a lot of places don't have a good outline of the accountability and they don't have a lot of transparency in the process. And what happens if the person that takes care of it is gone for a week, yeah. you know, and something comes up? Does the entire staff know? Do they know where that information is? Can they access it? Um, or does that sit on somebody's desk till they get back home if a notification comes in? You know, so there, there's all kinds of, again, places where things can just slip through the cracks. So just to kind of conclude this part of it, you, we expect to see that you have a policy that addresses all types of recalls, any safety notices, and then that policy is followed up with actual uh, at least for now in our conversation right now, you know, with some type of a manual process for tracking all that information and every single recall is listed and dealt with. If you have a pharmacy consultant, then the pharmacy consultant would be expected to come in and look. They would have their own list of uh, recent safety recalls and they would be able to double check also. And there's usually a note in that uh, pharmacy consultant's report that indicates what products they had that were subject to a recall and how they handled it. So that'd be another double check to make sure it's being done. So really encourage our listeners to uh, go and double check that policy if you haven't looked at it in a while and make sure it's modified. And just a quick little hint, one of the common citations now, you kind of alluded to it, Tracy, is uh, make sure that that recall policy is not just drug recalls, that it includes all supplies, equipment, and and uh, even food because food food can be recalled. So so let's now talk about easier ways of doing this. And let's just start with, let's just kind of go through the progression of how we started getting into electronic versions and where we're heading into the future. Sure. One of the areas a lot of places have started, and again, when we're looking at um, large acute facilities too, so not just ASCs, yeah. um, they would have um, basically one central person responsible. So, you know, a central coordinator, recall manager, whatever you want to call them, so that there's a designated person in the facility or organization that is specifically designated to handle that role. Um, again, in smaller facilities, it's not going to occupy a lot of time, but it still at least puts the accountability somewhere and everybody knows who then is that person and your, your reps will get to know that, you know, and that conspires as well. So that's very important because again, it just puts that accountability someplace so that you know it is being taken care of. Then we saw the advent of some of what we call broadcasters with Rasmus and some of those where they're putting that information out. Those are a lot of them are fee for service. So you're having to pay that. And it's once again, to me, it's putting the onus of this um, financially on the providers for a supplier's quality issue. So that to me just doesn't make sense. So, but but it is available, it is out there. And we've done it because of liability. We we've had to do it because of the liability to it. And so we found that it's worth paying that money for, right? Mm -hmm. Taking that just, just to make sure that our patients are safe. But um, well, and especially acknowledging that we have a lot of different ways of getting products now. So the traditional well, ways of getting the notifications are not always available. I mean, a lot of us use Amazon for, for purchases and Amazon sure. isn't exactly going to be, they do, but they, you can't rely upon them necessarily to send a recall notice back to you. Right. And we've seen more of the, the suppliers taking a little bit of a role in this and they're developing their own portions on their website for recalls. Well, that puts the providers then in the position of having to check multiple web pages yeah. or, you know, websites 
to define to see if there's recalls and if it affects them. So again, yeah, it's better than that than just having a pure paper where you're looking at the mail, but right. it's still a lot of work. It is, albeit on the computer, but. And, and again, you may hear it from, the thing is you can get it from so many sources. It may be on a blog that somebody's talking about a recall. The rep may come in and talk about it. The thing is, is that until you actually get the notification from the supplier, there's really nothing you can do because you don't have the action items that need to be done. Right. So, you know, that's the other thing is you need to have good, consistent information to be able to act upon the recall. And like I said, we can get it coming in from all different directions for us. So there needs to be a good source of truth for that. And again, right now it's that piece of paper coming through the mail. Um, so it's very important that there be a specified process of how it's going to work, how the notifications are going to go out within an organization. And again, depending on the size of your organization, it can be pretty daunting task if it's a large organization. If you've got somebody at a corporate area that owns several centers, you know, how do you manage that? How do you make sure everybody's getting notified within that group? Um, so there needs to be a way for that communication to be expedited and to be very organized. And then again, very well, um, with a repository to provide all that information and be able to collate it and put it together. So that's where, again, the advent of looking at what can providers do, what is out there and what can be made available to providers to take control of this process and not leave, be at the mercy of what the suppliers decide to do. So where are we heading? What's the, the, the new frontiers in this area? This, and that's the real real reason you're here is because <laughs> you're on the, on the cutting edge of this. Go ahead. Well, there's been several organizations, ARM, um, SMI. Some of these organizations have really put forth to the FDA and made recommendations that the FDA mandate that there be some kind of electronic format or communication involved with recalls or safety notices. And the FDA has made recommendations, but they've not put their foot down and said, this has to be. Has to be done. Yeah. And so what um, Notosphere decided to do was put together a format um, on a web-based platform where there is an actual direct communication between providers and suppliers. And once they are connected, then there's that free flow of information almost instantaneous um, between the supplier going to the provider with saying, hey, we have a record of you purchasing this. And so it's very directed. It's very um, specific to that organization. And you can designate how you want to do it. Your process can be implemented within this. If you have a decentralized process, it can be done that way. Or if it's a centralized process, but the supplier has that direct connection into the organization. The person that handles recalls from the supplier side is usually a post-market department, which is separate from the sales department. So sometimes there isn't even that communication. Um, I've had reps who didn't even know <laughs> that there was a recall for their product. So, I mean, you know, so there's there's a, a breakdown of communication on the supplier side, but on the provider side, they need to have that direct information. And then once they get it within the platform, it's web-based. So all I have to do is there's a button that comes up when they get one and they click it and it sends it back to them and says, yep, I've received it. So that all the next, all the duplicate notices will be stopped. And so then from there, they will have the action items that need to be done. And one of the things that's nice about our platform is if you're not connected to suppliers at the time, you can scan it in, but it still provides you some direct communication within your organization once you have that scanned in to share that information with the end users who need to report back and tell you what's going on. And they can tell you whether you've got product, what to do with it, that kind of thing. So again, it makes it really seamless. It makes it almost instantaneous that you can put this information in this web-based application and turn around and again, respond internally, externally, and then you have a central repository with all recall-related activity. So this provides a central repository regardless of whether Novosphere did uh, the actual uh, communication between the manufacturer vendor and the, the surgery center. Right, we're just the conduit in, in right. that respect. We are just the conduit for that. And so, um, and what's really nice about this, and I'm sure all your listeners will appreciate this, it's free to providers. Yeah, um, I that that you need to repeat that. <laughs> it is. It is free. We're modeling it after like what um, the vendor management system, or even like the scrub system, right? Where yeah. the suppliers have to pay for it to use the scrubs or to be able to come into the facility. So we're modeling it after that. Because again, why do providers have to pay for something that is a quality issue from a supplier? 
And it benefits them because the cost, again, we spoke about the cost of mailing something today and how many they have to mail. When when you're talking about somebody like Medtronic or one of those big companies, can you imagine what they're spending in mail to send out these recall notifications and how many times a year it's happening? And we're seeing it more and more. Recalls are on their eyes um, and safety notices. And like I said, it just blows my mind. And I know I keep bringing this up, but when we look at all the technical updates and the software and that kind of stuff, that can be affected by this, it, it can be massive. And so, um, and even when you look at it from a unit perspective, like per item, it can be in the millions, you know, that they're yeah. like, so um, it, it's it's saving money on both sides. And so to say that it would be unreasonable to ask the suppliers to pay for something like this, it's really not. And they have an opportunity then to be able to communicate directly to them and make sure that they have on their side as well, a central repository where they can pull up what has happened within the recall. It will show, they don't see your internal processes that are in the system, mm-hmm. but they will see what the responses have been, how soon they were. They can show how long it's taken to address recalls. Um, and cause that can go on for months for them by yeah. the time they reach everybody, you know, but more importantly from a, a facility standpoint, it can show everything that they have done in one place and anyone can access it. If you give them the website to log in and you don't have to be an active user, I could send you John a a link and you could get in, respond, do whatever you need to do, but you won't have to log into the system and be able to, to send it back to me. And then I can put it all together and send it on. And again, when there's an organization that has multiple sites it can be all done and filtered up so that there is that transparency, the visibility of all that information to the corporate level so that you can do it at your safety meetings so that you can show during any kind of regulatory or compliance things that come up, you know, that you're looking at for accreditation or whatever. So um, it, it provides a, just a nice, smooth way to get this accomplished. But it's a... Again, I call it my grassroots movement because the suppliers need to, or excuse me, the providers need to demand this because the suppliers are not going to do it if they're not nudged. Because like I said, a lot of them are just doing their own websites and thinking that that's going to suffice. And I would like the providers to drive this rather than the suppliers tell us what to do because this fits more into our workflow. Yeah, and, that makes perfect sense. I agree. Yeah. I, and while we're on that subject, you you did mention that this is something that should go through committees. Um, so another recommendation I'd make to everybody that's listening is that you actually have a line item in your quality improvement minutes that addresses recalls and maybe not specifically listing every single le- recall, but you know, the major ones there, or just a statement that there were no products found that were recalled during this period of time. But do address it in your quality improvement minutes. That'll help demonstrate your compliance with it. And and I like what, what you've just described. There's two things that are really, I mean, I like a lot about it, but two things that I think are important. It's a one place to keep all of this. You get rid of your binders. It's all together. You'll never lose all of that documentation. Again, the second part that I really like, which I think is important, is that somebody at a higher level in the organization can go in and check to make sure that somebody is doing this work and following up as appropriate on those recalls. Absolutely. And and like I said, it's really cool because you can get a time frame to see. And one of the things that I feel is additional added benefit is we all know, too, that when you're looking at accreditation, they want to see QI projects being done all the time, right? This would actually satisfy one of those because you can kind of do a before and after. Here's what our process was before. I love it. Here's how long it took. And yeah. here's what it is now. And we actually had a facility that did that when Joint Commission came in and showed that. And you know, they've changed the standards too, as you know, for the environment of care, they used to spend an hour talking about it. You had time to kind of communicate what you're doing. Now it's going to be kind of a yes or no, right? Yeah. It, it's going to be check off or not check off. And so this provides a really easy way to show them that you're complying with what needs to be done. You're, you're maintaining that patient safety in that area. And there's accountability to addressing recalls within your organization. Absolutely. So we'll uh, provide a link for more information about the uh, about the product. And again, let's reemphasize again, this is free uh, to the uh, providers. If you're a supplier out there, it's not free to you. So, and, and indeed, we have a lot of suppliers that are listeners too. This is obviously a system that will 
save you money. I mean, I can't imagine how much money it could possibly save, especially it's not even just the paperwork or the mail. It's just the time that people would spend on this process, whereas now you got a one-stop shop for it. I, I think you've made a, a major breakthrough in, in uh, efficiency, and I really appreciate you bringing it to our attention. Ed, do you want to just mention your name and, uh, and contact information? Absolutely. It's really easy. It's Tracy, but it's T-R-A-C-E-Y at notosphere.com. And it's N-O-T-I-S-P-H-E-R-E.com. So Tracy at notosphere.com. And I look forward to answering anyone's questions, providing a demo, anything that you would like to see from an information um, standpoint. Just give me a give me a text or an email and uh, we'll get back to you. And uh, Tracy is a big friend of the ambulatory surgery industry. And I really, on behalf of the industry, I thank you for all the hard work that, especially during the pandemic, as I said, that's when you and I got to know each other. You were in the supply chain area at that time and your, your insight was invaluable during that time. So thank you so much for that. So thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Take care. In this segment, we provide an update on upcoming topics for the podcast, our upcoming virtual conferences, and upcoming speaking engagements for John and his staff, and other events in the ASC industry. And our ASC Administrators Boot Camp for Administrators Ambulatory Surgery Centers and those looking to become CAST certified uh, will be January 24th through the 27th, 2023. For more information about that and all the benefits of uh, joining on our boot camp, uh, visit ASCPodcast.com. And ASCA's 2023 Winter Seminar is January 12th through the 14th at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas, Nevada. And I'll be heading out there to do a whole morning on uh, finance and accounting. There's kind of like a mini boot camp, I would say, for uh, finance and accounting at that conference. So for more information on ASCA 2023's Winter Seminar, visit ASCAssociation.org. AORN's Global Surgical Conference and Expo 2023 is April 1st through the 4th at the Henry B. Gonzalez Convention Center in San Antonio, Texas. And ASCA 2023 Conference and Expo is May 17th through the 20th, 2023 at the Kentucky International Convention Center in Louisville, Kentucky. And I'll be doing, I think, three uh, speeches there, and, uh, and Lori will be down there also with us as well as quite a number of staff from the Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies Group. So definitely visit ASCAssociation.org to sign up for ASCA 2023. And also don't forget about our recorded events. They're all available on ASCPodcast.com. We have a credentialing conference that we recorded in 2020. It was a full day conference talking about how to do credentialing, provider credentialing in an ambulatory surgery center. And then in uh, fall of 2022, we did a finance, accounting, and reimbursement conference, which is now available. We also did a uh, conditions for coverage conference. The recording's available uh, for, uh, we recorded that in 2021. It's a really good conference, Sue, right, for uh, explaining the, all of the conditions for coverage. We're, we're going to uh, have to re-record that soon. And then also in 2021, we did a medical director conference, which talked uh, to medical directors about the responsibilities that they have, particularly uh, during a survey and, and what their responsibilities are as a medical director. And don't forget about our on-demand version of our Director of Nursing and Administrators Boot Camps. Those are uh, newly revised and they're available on our website at ASCPodcast.com. And again, let's remind everyone to become a patron member of the podcast. Patron members help support our efforts here in maintaining this free podcast and for uh, $25 a month, you get a whole host of uh, benefits. The uh, patron program is also known as ASC Central. As we indicated, there is a brand new website for it. Uh, and it's an exclusive membership website that provides a one-stop ASC regulatory and accreditation compliance operations and financial management resource for busy administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers. The uh, resources that are available include virtual conferences, links to various resources, policies and procedures, forms, drills, uh, and other information, as well as access to free AEU credits just for listening to the podcast. And probably the most important part and the, the benefit that everybody seems to enjoy is those Saturday drop-in drop sessions where you can uh, meet uh, via a private Zoom link uh, with other patron members and talk about things that are going on. We usually talk at least an hour, sometimes an hour and a half uh, every Saturday morning. It's not 
every single Saturday, but uh, it certainly has been for at least the last couple months. And membership does help defray the cost of producing the podcast, including our research staff, travel costs to conferences, equipment costs, and the production costs. And for more information, of course, you can visit ASCpodcast.com. And that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Galen. Please spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Calaritis, Amy Durbano, Lori Rodericks, Kathy Foti, Donna Macchio, and Ann Geyer. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah, and the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, Trivalence, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Surgical Information Systems provides cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable insights. Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies is the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCpodcast.com. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute, legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you are interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCpodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCpodcast.com.